Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We explore how behavioral science can improve your well-being, your relationships, and your organization by helping you find your groove. Okay, Tim. Do you ever feel like social media has turned uh, a bit toxic and maybe it's strayed from its original promise of creating meaningful connections and, and it's been hijacked by trolls and partisans? You ever, ever think of that? Yes, Captain Obvious. <laughs> I would say I would say that would be an understatement. <laughs> oh my gosh! I, I so all right. I agree. Me too. Right. The, okay. There we go. Uh, you and I are of the age that we remember what life was like before the internet. Yes, kids, that makes us old. We know that. <laughs> we, we understand. But but there was this promise. I mean, at the beginning, that there was this mm-hmm. promise of the internet and social media in particular of what it could do to, to bring the world closer together. And somehow it feels that promise has only been eh, partially successful. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Kurt. You know, the internet has allowed us to make friends from around the world. You know, it, very cool. It's also ruined some of the friendships that I had at home. You know, I, I mean, it's put us in rival camps and fostered misinformation and conspiracy theories. And and frankly, that just makes life less enjoyable. Oh, yep. Agree 100%, which is why I'm very happy to bring this episode to life, because we end up talking about ways that uh, we can design social media and the Internet to combat some of those negative aspects. Yeah. So in the, in this episode, we talked with John Fallot and Philippe Lawrence Spreen, who work at Pro Social Design Network. And their mission is to promote pro-social design, evidence-based design practices that bring out the very best in human nature online. Now, Dr. Philippe Lorenz-Spreen is a research scientist based in Berlin, Germany, and his work focuses on decision-making and finding ways to improve the online democratic process through environmental interventions. And John Fallot is a user experience and graphic designer based in New York City, and he co-founded the Pro Social Design Network with uh, his colleague Joel Putnam in late 2019 in order to better explore ways that the web could be optimized for guess what pro social behaviors. Yeah, and and while there are no silver bullets in this effort, the conversation gave me hope. I, I don't know about you, Tim, but it gave me a little bit of hope. You know? Yeah, and, and very much prom- so. And it provides some insights for everyone on how to approach social media and the internet in general in a better way. Note that there are some background noise of babies and life happening in this episode, but that's yep. how we roll here at Behavior. It, it comes and goes. So yep. It comes and goes. So, so with that, we invite you to lift a glass of digital connection bliss and enjoy our conversation with John and Philippe. Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, John Fallot and Philip Lawrence Spreen. Hello. We are glad to have you both here, and we want to start with a quick speed round. Tell us, both of you, John, let's start with you, John. What would be your preference, coffee or tea? Coffee. 100% coffee. 100%. I like like how, how, you know, perfect that is. All right. And in fact, one other quick note, specifically Maxwell House, mostly because they have 
in their old commercials, they have the Wicked Wicked, uh, Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, Edith, is Edith Hamilton? Yes. That? Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, you gotta go for that. Not, uh, <laughs> I love that's the reason why you choose Maxwell House. It's not like the, it. the taste or anything. It's like they, they had the, you know, the it's Wicked, the Witch, Wicked of the Witch of the West. Of the West. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And Philip, Philip, I'm curious about you. Coffee or tea? Absolutely coffee, very clearly. Maybe it's my, <clears throat> because we are living close to Italy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so my guess is, are you more interested in an espresso or? Uh, yeah, or, definitely the yeah. Italian versions. Uh, there you go. Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay, thank you. Okay, so if you had to travel, vacation travel. And again, let's start with John. It, do you travel with a set itinerary or no itinerary at all? Uh, I would say a set itinerary. I really need to travel more, that's for sure. So, <laughs> I don't remember that last vacation. Is that what that uh, that's? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's go with that one. <laughs> okay. Philip, how about you? Itinerary or no itinerary when you travel for fun? Uh, no, I would say. Oh, <laughs> a man after my own heart there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I love the fact that you two work together, collaborate together, uh, and uh, polar opposites in this particular aspect. That's great. <laughs> okay, this this might be a little more focused on Philip. So, Philip, why don't you start? But, I, John, I'm curious about your thoughts as well. Berlin or, or New York, which has better food? <laughs> I, I can start. Unfortunately, I have not been to New York before, so oh. I can't even tell you. Oh. <laughs> I've been oh. to I've been to Boston, and I have to say... Okay. I, I would even say a slight advantage for Boston. You would? Oh, wow. wow. Okay. Okay. John? I mean, I'm the reverse situation yet again. I get to be to Berlin. I am definitely open to it. Um, but <laughs> given that New York is New York and I live near New York, I've lived in New York, and New York probably encapsulates Berlin in sort of its own way, I would have to say New York. Ah, Okay. It's okay. interesting. I've 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 eaten in both, and I think both are really they're, they're distinct and good. Fantastic. So there you go. If you want a good if you want a good schnitzel, you you got to be in Berlin. <laughs> that is true. That's that is true. true. Or, That's or, true. Or Munich. And if you yeah. want a good yeah. falafel or shawarma, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they'd go to New York. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Last last of the speed round questions, and I will throw this open to whoever wants to answer it. Can we inoculate ourselves against misinformation online? Is that something that is even possible? Um, maybe I can say something quickly on that. Okay. If it's possible, I would say yes, but I don't think it's the silver bullet. <laughs> <laughs> ah. So, so it's, it's, it's possible, but it probably is, is not likely that it is going to happen. Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, it, will, it will happen. It, it won't protect us from all. But it will be, be ah. a certain layer in, in such a kind of layer model, if you think about it, that will hold off at least part of it. Okay. Okay. So it's it's a partial it's a partial immunization as you as you're talking about as kind of getting there. It's it's gonna you might still get get uh, the disease, but you're not gonna get as sick. Is that kind of a, a, a bad metaphor for for what we're talking about there? I would rather say it will protect some people and others not so much. Ah. It's rather this heterogeneity ah. of effects, you know. Ooh. And then so so and for others other interventions will work. So that's what I mean. And there's this kind of idea of the layers and at each layer you protect certain groups and in the end everybody's protected. 
All right. That's that's fantastic. And and we asked that question because both uh, both of you are part of the Pro Social Network, and the Pro Social Network is a really cool concept. And I'm going to leave it up to to you to talk about what what the Pro Social Network is and what is its mission. So, John, if you want to take that one. Well, just to clarify, it's Pro Social Design Network. Sorry, thank you. Pro Social Design Network. I apologize thank you. for that. Yeah, originally, I think we were rolling with just calling it pro-social design. And then I was like, that's leaving it a bit of a cliffhanger. So ultimately, <laughs> my, uh, Fair enough. And my Fair co-founder enough. and I, uh, very early on, uh, decided to switch it over to network. We were discussing possibly doing P, uh, pro-social design alliance, which would be PDA, like public displays of affection. <laughs> but, uh, like, yeah. That's a bit much, but... No. So uh, with uh, the ProSocial Design Network, we're looking at ways that the web can be redesigned so as to promote ProSocial behaviors online, mostly through design. A good way to think about it is that, and this is sort of an analogy I use a lot, is when it comes to, let's take the example of a plane, for instance, and you're flying a plane, and or if you're a pilot, let's say, and you're flying a plane, of course... <laughs> There are all sorts of tools and instruments that help you gauge where you are in relation to other people. And if you didn't have all those tools and metrics to gauge where you are, the plane would crash. There's just no question about it. In the case of social media, a lot of those cues aren't there. And there, there's an old, I believe it's an old survey from like 2012, so it could be outdated. But it was suggesting that something like 80% of text messages are likely to miscommunication. So perhaps that's improved over time, not likely. But that's all to say, is it any surprise given the status quo where things are with social media, everything being a dumpster fire, conversations literally crashing and burning, that there might be some connection there that maybe we need more of those sort of cues to be like, okay, all these subtle nonverbal cues that we get from other people, where are those uh, in a digital interface? And how can we help generate those, how can we sort of pull those in using all the available scientific literature that's out there. And to that end, a lot of that involves looking at, for our part, we look at research that's already been done in this space and kind of curating all of that to see, okay, where are the bright spots? Where are things going well in social networks with regards to uh, countering disinformation, misinformation, polarization, all those issues, and not so much looking at where things have gone wrong, but where things have gone right and kind of the bright spots in the data. So that's a big part of our mission is curating that and then making it actionable through designers. So in that regard, right now, a lot of that is just sort of documenting what has worked and showcasing it. Down the line, it would be fantastic for us to have a component library, almost like what you might have on a service like Figma or Miro or something like that, where you can just take these designs and then download them for your own product use. And then going on from there, finding ways to, if not, well, that, that's more of a conversation for later, figuring out if there, if companies know this data and know how to make it work or help improve conversations, how do you make a compelling case to those companies? But that's very much further down the line. Right now, we're focused more on curating all the best practices that are out there. If, if you could, would you want to re-engineer, so to speak, the the World Wide Web? It depends. I would say a big part of it in the design interface side of things, I would say absolutely. I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of room for improvement there. Mm -hmm. A good analogy I 
like to point to is sort of the successes that have come about with uh, accessibility and design and how previously before accessibility standards were really promulgated and put out there, the there wasn't a way to account for colorblindness in design. If someone was colorblind and right. they're an interface that's not coherent to them, best of luck to you. But that said, they through regulations and in some cases, some legal actions that took place. Now we have a system where it's like you have to design to the standard to help your users navigate the site. And so I guess the question that our work raises is that is it out of the question to pose that for uh, social interactions? And especially since there's right. so much at stake. I mean, you could even argue that democracy is at stake with a lot of this stuff. Uh, so making sure we get that right, making sure that whatever we're whatever products are getting put out there that have a social component, are we ensuring that the users are empowered to fully understand one another as appropriate, of course. Yeah. You don't want Philip, did, did Philip, did you want to jump in on that? No, no, I'm sorry. I, I think this was a absolutely great overview. And uh, what John just said is that, you know, empowering people to understand each other in the best possible way online. Whenever an app or a platform has a social component, I think that's the essence. That's really cool. Yeah. Very well described. <laughs> so you talk about this idea that there's an importance to this, this idea that even democracy might be on the line. Can you get, dig into that a little bit deeper? What, why is this so important? You know, we've, we've had conversations with people for millennia and people have misinformed others for you know for that entire time what makes this piece uh, uh, ring a little bit louder for you guys can i uh, speak to that quickly because i just wrote an article about that <laughs> perfect Spe thank you specific uh, specific relationship i think the big difference is the complexity and the behavioral component of social media it's true that about radio, about um, movies, and pre before that, about the printing press, people have said that, and there were fears. But the difference is this interactive part. People really self-organize. Um, and even with these past media, there have been concerns, and some of them were actually rightfully so. So there are effects of media to public opinion, and then in the end also behavior. And what we did in this article is we tried to collect like all the scientific literature, broad uh, review article, systematically understand what are these effects, especially f of social media. And uh, we looked at all these different variables of political behavior uh, in a systematic way, and we indeed find relatively clear directions. So, for example, uh, social media use seems to be associated with more political participation, so uh, like a mobilizing effect. But uh, that's, that's, so to say, on the good side. We also see slightly positive effects for political knowledge. People seem to get better informed when they use more the internet and social media. However, they also get more polarized and populism, for example, or populists have a market advantage, it seems, uh, in this kind of ecosystem, which, um, yeah, is the downside of it. So it's not good or bad, but it's clear that there are distinct effects that have a direction. And it's not that we don't know nothing and maybe it's all overhyped fears, but actually... There are things going on that are definitely important for democracy. That's why I think solving those issues on this micro level, on the design level, is super important to travel up to the 
macroscopic to the democracy level. John, do you have something to add? Because I'm going to follow up with, with Philip on that just after this. But again, I want to make sure that we get to hear your voice. Certainly. Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of what Philip said. And I suppose beyond that, uh, a big one thing I kind of bring to the table with all of this is that there are definitely limits to what this work can accomplish. It, a good analogy would be uh, it's one tool among many. Sometimes you may need some sort of sledgehammer to go in there and make these systemic changes to society and everything of that sort. Not really likely, but in this case, I think it's more of like it's it's more of a scalpel just to go in there and make sure that for all the sort of miscommunications that occur, that uh, it's more of a kind of a, it's working at one layer, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm addressing the question correctly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah. So Philip, you wrote a paper on micro-targeting and this idea of people's ability to detect micro-targeted advertising. And so when you were talking about, uh, you know, how social media is different where my head was kind of going with this was also the ability for these large organizations to now take behavioral science insights and target those at a very specific, you know, almost individualistic perspective, which to you talked about the printing press and radio and all those other things that, you know, we haven't had that power before. Is that also one of the key things in your mind of how the, the, the importance of making sure that we we at least explore this and look and think about this and figure out ways to uh, overcome some of these limitations? Um, absolutely. So I we call this the asymmetry of knowledge or power between the platform and the users, and of course a lack of transparency about all those targeting practices that go on. So we don't. So they know much about us. We we know very little about what they know, so to say. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and and of course this is. I mean, it depends on your interpretation of mm, what the public sphere should look like. But in my interpretation, uh, transparency is, so to say, a precondition for. Yeah, a public conversation where everybody's is, is on level, on eye level, and and in this case, yeah. this in, at least in the commercial realization of the current platforms, this of course also leads to exploitative relationships uh, because you know mm. then there is a business model behind all the platforms, and if they know so much about us, uh, they will use it for that. And I think the the effects on democracy, the ones that I was just talking about, like these behavioral effects. They are not necessarily, they're not intended in that sense, but they're like, you know, they are collateral damage that happens from this rather goal-oriented way of uh, platforms working for for profit. So you, you're not necessarily talking about a Cambridge Analytica type approach that's like, <sighs> yeah. all right, we are we are trying to, d- to divide and to, d- you know, create this division um, because we think that it's going to, you know, promote our our candidate above and beyond and and engage people in a way that isn't. You're just saying that there's just in general, the, the very nature of, of this uh, has some collateral damage to creating some of those divisions. I would say that's definitely what we're currently seeing. And the the effectiveness of Cambridge Analytica is debated, but that's of course another danger. Absolutely. I mean, at the moment, this data and this information falls into political hands and, in interest, which is certainly already the case, especially in the U.S., where targeting and political domains are is already for some time practice, and here it becomes more and more 
fashionable, um, is absolutely dangerous. And our studies where we try to protect people from uh, micro-targeting or at least make them see through this pattern and of course, the main application is to see through, especially political advertisement that's targeted uh-huh. on your to your towards your like weaknesses or um, fears and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I mean, wh- where do we go with that, right? Uh, how, how do we? What 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 does the pro social design network have to say about? how to deal with things like that. I mean, John, you can also jump in, but I think uh, if you think about uh, transparency in also the micro-targeting domain, then the design can also go a long way because transparency is not just transparency. Just uh, You know that from consent forms, uh, cookie banners, where you can actually put a lot of information on the screen, but you are not really providing actual transparency. So I'm, I think behavioral science and pro-social design is definitely <laughs> important to make transparency meaningful. Yeah. John? John? Yeah, John, add, add to that. Yeah, I suppose where the pro-social design network kind of fits into all of that is when it, since a lot of the political conversations now are happening on social media, it definitely makes sense to have these sorts of interventions in place to help help humanize the other side of the argument whenever there are these sorts of debates or conversations happening and making sure that people can kind of, if they're going to approach one another on these political, about these political conversations, that there's some mutual understanding between all parties and that it's not going to escalate in sort of a kind of the weird dehumanization cycles you see online. I mean, for the sake of example, I mean, I, I grew up basically in a, fairly uh, rural community just outside of uh, New York City, surprisingly. Just, you know, you would think New York City is just like all, you know, <laughs> but no, right. I'm way right. out there on uh, Long Island. But uh, yeah, there I happen to be very much progressive Democrat just for a number of reasons. It's on a two-hour teachers, all that good stuff. But I, you know, as much as I identify as that, I grew up around a lot of, you know, folks that identify as Republican and I don't, how do, how do I phrase this tactfully? I, while I do have political disagreements, like I don't actively want to, you know, hate my neighbors over this sort of stuff. And yet you see that sort of escalation of rhetoric happening. And it's, it's not a happy thought to think, you know, okay, do I have to worry if my neighbors are going to, you know, turn on me over this? That's like the extreme side of the take on it. But since all these conversations are happening online and there's this escalation component, okay. uh, How do we, See, I mean, we're kind of to some, maybe to some extent, seeing it kind of coming down the road. It's like, okay, we have all this literature here about conflict resolution and design and how they sort of intersect with nudge theory, everything else. How do we prevent that? And how do we ensure, like, okay, we're going to have disagreements, we're going to have things that come into cross purposes with each other, different sort of stances. How do we navigate these so they're mutually beneficial and that, like, we can go forward from here? And if they're not, if we can't come to agreement, if they're mutually exclusive stances, how can we accept that and even work from there, even though it's like, okay, we have these disagreements, but we're still neighbors, we're still fellow Americans or whatever country, whichever country. And then how do we work from there? So that's really when it comes to democracy and those key points, I would say that's the big crux of the pro-social design network. Set. And then there's also sort of the other side of it, which is in order for us to do our work, it requires a democratic sort of understanding of things, just given that a lot of 
science requires us to follow thoughts wherever they lead and like look, come back and be like, okay, here's what I found. If you have a non-democratic approach to that, where it's like you have to, you know, cook the books and come back with results that match the narrative, that's not great. And you're not going to get the yeah. best data out of that. So that's really a major reason why we've kind of thrown our hand into the ring of democracy, as it were. I mean, I love that. Other more intrinsic benefits of it's not authoritarianism. But. Yeah, I, I love that. So one of the things that I found really interesting is on, on your website, you have a, a full list of interventions that that you guys are looking at. And just out of curiosity, you know, because we all do. I mean, as much as we say we love all our children the same, you know, we have favorites, <laughs> right? Do, do you have a favorite intervention out of the ones that that you've seen there, or maybe a, a few that you go, ah, these these are the ones that I kind of really like, and I hope to to your point, you don't want to cook the books on them, but you're you're hoping that they're gonna show show through. Uh, I'll leave this to Philip for now, just because I'm incredibly biased on all this because I'm the one. <laughs> so like all the designs, everything you see before you, like that was that was me designing. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Well, let's put Philip on the hot seat. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. That's good. That's fine. Um, my favorite interventions are the ones that are you know as independent of the content itself, like not those warning labels, fact checks. I think they are all important and necessary but they have scaling problems yeah. and also there's this trust issue uh, i think like um, friction interventions are nice because it slows down all this process and it's somehow the counterpart of frictionless design that i think most platforms strive for to keep us engaged and keep us on the on the screens um, and it's kind of the counter movement and it's quite neutral i like this one um, and i like all the interventions that empower people to know more about where they are in the network who they are talking to, why they see certain uh, posts and why others not. And that gives them more control. Like all those empowering ones I really like because that shifts power not to the lawmaker or to the fact checkers or to the platforms, but but they have enough already, (laughs) but to the people, to really the users. And I think we can trust people that they, if they have good information and they, they can navigate and orientate, then... I trust people at least that then also conversations become more civil and, yeah. and interesting because I, I just did my quick peruse. So Philip, the slowdown modes, I thought that one was, I'm like, ah, oh, that's pretty cool. I think that to, to your point, some of that friction piece, but I also, I, I like the thank you button. I, I, you know, I was like on, ah, what a simple kind of thing that could be really, I mean, and I'm, I'm thinking from a, you know, a human interaction, behavioral science kind of perspective going, all right, so you're 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 already you're you're putting that thank you that gratitude kind of piece out, and does that reciprocate? And that be I'd like to see how that that kind of works. And then I, I one I just thought that was fun was email to troll suggesting their account has been hacked. This uh, <laughs> idea, and I'm not sure how that would work, but I just thought that uh, interesting concept. So yeah. yeah, that one I'm trying to remember. I don't think we ever got the name of the site that did that, but Christian Crumlish, uh, who involved with our work to some extent, and he wrote several books on this topic. I think, he, I think it's called like Design Patterns. It's from the 2000s. Uh, anyway, he pointed that one out to us it's in terms of a possible intervention. And you're right, there may be some significant drawbacks. <laughs> that said, I mean, in terms of the ones I'm of the list, you know, that we yep. have, I do like the one. 
that uh, I agree with the thank you button is a really nice one. Um, and the other one is the um, show content reach and number of views, which I believe Twitter actually is starting to do that. I don't think that's... I don't think that's something necessarily they've done because like, Oh, we saw this on the pro social design. If they did great. Well, yeah. <laughs> Take credit. What the yeah. hell? If, if they did great. I mean, although I do want to out of habit, I just hedge on everything. Um, yeah. but, um, that said, yeah. There are some- May I jump in on this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just quickly, because those are two, two super cool examples from what I mean that both thank you buttons give you more types of interaction. So it in- empowers us. And this other gives us more information yeah. about what is the base rate of people who saw this post. So both things would be empowering interventions yeah. in my view, specific examples for that. Who like is that. using slowdown modes in a way that you think are replicable and, and good? Uh, Discord. They're the ones that definitely, they use slowdown modes where it's more of a moderation tool they employ uh, for different channels, but folks can, who are moderators can you know, for a given channel, say, okay, you can only post X amount of times in X amount of minutes or what have you. Mm. That prevents things from just being walls of spam and everything of that sort. Yeah, I mean, Discord is interesting. It's known for having a lot of, let's be polite and call them issues. But that said, uh, that's one area where I think they're doing well. Whether or not, it, again, it's one of those ratings that's it's only rated in prints. So that probably needs more research to see how effective it is. But it's promising i would say yeah um, didn't it, it it reminds me a little bit of uh was it um josh turnbull who, uh, his reddit site on uh how to you know change your mind yep. uh, and and his requirement was your post if you wanted to contradict you you couldn't be supportive of the previous post you could you could only add something that would help illuminate or clarify but you couldn't just just add on and pile on and pile on and pile on with with whatever it, every other post had to be sort of you know an, an opposite argument and then after a while it's like well i guess they've all been said and so here we are with you know 13 lines of opposing ideas but it, we we only get exposed to those 13 ideas and it we don't have hundreds and thousands of posts reiterating the same message over and over and over again cal turnbull that that was it. Yeah. excuse me yeah absolutely yeah. correct this is uh, change my view is a very nice example and, and what you described would be a, a measure for deliberative quality in the scientific sense so to say that where arguments are reacted to and new arguments are brought up but it's, as you say, not like piling up or, or trying to yeah. overburden the, the one side with many, many arguments from, for, for the same point. So that is actually yeah. a, a quality criteria that you could implement by design in such forums. Yeah, I like it. What is the obligation of behavioral scientists? Uh, you know, we, we study... Uh, why people do what they do. And so what is the obligation of behavioral scientists when they're working in conjunction with with designers and in this area? Are there ethical things that we need? Is there a a hard line in the sand that needs to be drawn at certain areas? What are you guys' thoughts on some of those ethical components? Um, Maybe quickly from my side, I think um, in in this particular domain, uh, our obligations are is to, to become a counterweight to all the behavioral scientists that work for Facebook and, and the other companies. <laughs> wow. wow yeah. um, I mean, we are not many and not as, as well paid and so on, but uh, I think that's, and, the, and the, the distinction 
is in the end not much. It's in the end it's maybe the IRB board, like the ethical improvement that we need yeah. for what we do. Um, but other than that, of course, yeah. I mean, this is all not clear cut. And, uh, and but but I think that if the public sector, so to say, also is worried about those issues, we have to build up this expertise on that side. We have to learn how to analyze social media data and how to design platforms for for other purposes than what they are currently designed for. And that's the counterweight we can start building up. But of course, this takes some time and money and so on. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. You, you, what kind of spurred my thought there when you were talking about that, Philip, is Niriel, who who wrote, you know, uh, Hooked, right? And invariably, he said he wrote that for this idea of, of helping people uh, to overcome some of these things that that are built into products and different things. And yet it became kind of this Bible for how to design, you know, products and services to get people hooked using the behavioral science piece of it. And so it's it's an interesting conundrum. Uh, the the research that we we do and how it gets applied sometimes is out of our hands. And um uh, that that makes it that makes it difficult. Uh, absolutely, we we hit that area b- barrier sometimes, and also Michael Kosinski uh, about the Cambridge Analytica topic was a similar case. He said he just developed the method, and then it was used for those purposes. Um, we cannot protect fully from that, but we what we can do is when we develop interventions, we can think about how can they misused, and then think yeah. if they can be easily misused. Maybe the intervention is not so good. Like that's what I mean. Why I like empowering interventions more because when you empower people truly then it's difficult to to be fully misused in order to manipulate them of course other things like nudges that can be more paternalistic and less empowering they can be used for both sides or, yeah, both, yeah. or yeah. all sides i mean there are not two but <laughs> many sides that's why i like the empowering interventions most i love that john did you want to did you want to jump in on that yeah i'll be it with more of a uh anecdote since you mentioned Neuriel, uh, he actually plays a interesting part in sort of the what led to pro social design happening uh, just because there was a there was a conference I had attended in mid 2019 uh, at uh, Betaworks in New York City. Uh, Neuriel was there, Tristan Harris was there, Ellie Pariser was there, a lot of the big names in the humane tech space. But it was, one part that really stands out to me from that whole experience, which was fantastic, was uh, Near Isle at one point, you know, was saying, yeah, anyone who says like, oh, tech is addictive or whatever, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, he sort of was going on this, uh, I don't want to say tirade, but it's, you know, kind of a, I guess, manifesto of some sort. But on the one hand, you had him saying that, you had other scientists saying the exact opposite thing of like, oh, tech is addictive. And of course, Justin Harris is there saying, it does all these things to your brain. Like, what are you talking about? Um, (laughs) And of course, when Near Isle said that, I was like, I think my exact thinking was like, oh man, this is going to be a Jerry Springer sort of thing. Is it what people throwing <laughs> there? <laughs> but, um, chaos, chaos yeah, coming. But uh, no, what, what was great with it was um, having all those conflicting points and it really helped me sort of realize there may be a need to get through all the, you know, different data points and be like, okay, what's, the, what makes sense in the middle of all this? And, and there was another, I don't want to name names in terms of the, a person pitching this product, but suffice to say, it was this idea of like, you'll have this, his whole product idea was having a website that would, through reading your facial muscles, change the color of your screen to help wow. induce certain moods. That was wow. sort of the idea with it. Um, wow. And 
I, of course, thought it was a terrible idea <laughs> for a number of reasons, one being surveillance, the other being there's probably there probably are sufficient behavioral science cues out there to be like, want to make your users behave in a certain way. There, that could be, you know, and that sort of questioning, of course, led to a couple months later, me sitting down with Joel over coffee and being like, okay, there's a lot of data here. There's a lot to work with here. Let's see if we can make something out of it. Yeah. It, th- that story reminds me, Tim and I were actually had a similar kind of situation. We were out in San Francisco at a behavioral science com- marketing conference. And one person took us aside at the kind of the happy hour and was just explaining this new, you know, system that they had that was basically market m- micro-targeting um, people in San Francisco ads based on the weather and then some personal information that they could gleam. So if it was, you know, 72 degrees and they knew that, all right, at 72 degrees, Kurt likes to buy, you know, beer because we've seen that in his past thing. We're going to give him uh, an advertisement to, to buy beer. But, but you know, Tim doesn't buy it until it gets to 80 degrees. So he's going to get a whole different advertisement just based on geolocation, weather patterns, and, you know, a whole history yeah. of things. And they're going, how great is this? And I'm going, this is horrible. This seems like it's yeah, like, uh, a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Creepy. Verging on creepy. Yeah. Very, very I, creepy. So if you guys don't mind, I've got to just, I'm curious. I love that we have uh, two guests on different continents right now. And uh, I'd like to just ask, what's on your playlist? What do you like to listen to these days? What What are the the musicians or or uh, tracks or uh, types of music that you're listening to? Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, I can start with uh, this one. So my probably my favorite song right at the moment. Uh, it's a bit old, I guess. Uh, it's "Everybody Wants to Rule the World" by uh, Fears for Fears. Yeah, uh, it just it always puts me in a great mood. I really love that sort of synthy sort of '80s vibe, and of course, growing up as a kid in the '90s, it's like I remember very fondly listening to that uh, song, like going over, like on a road trip, we're going over the Throgs Neck Bridge, and just hearing that is sort of like one of those core memories that just stick with you. Um, and I, other than that, I mean, I went to SUNY Purchase, which is very much a uh, musical school or just art school in general. Right. And I had the privilege of being with a lot of up and coming artists. And it's sort of surreal now looking back uh, there's uh, Ty Sunderland is one. He's a DJ. He does all sorts of uh, parties uh, on boats out on the East river. And they're quite well known in the New York scene. Uh, And I mean, I, when I was in college, I actually, I think I booked him. I did. I booked him for an event. Uh, to like kind of promote our student government elections, so it's like, oh yeah, I, I, uh, oh yeah, let's get tie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's Cat uh, Cunning, who uh, she was an extra on the Deuces recently, but she has a really promising musical career. She's just phenomenal. Uh, and I had uh, poetry classes with her. You know, when we were, just, I remember, you know, we were talking at one point about like Tolkien and like kind of the rhythm he has in you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's work of like yeah. green bells and da, 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 kind of the, the, uh, the kind of quality of anvils and stuff in The Hobbit. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that works great. That works great. Philip, go ahead. Um, yeah, since I'm from, I'm living in Berlin, so I live, uh, listen to a mixture of techno and hip hop. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. Nice. Uh, I would say for work, I like to listen to some 
eternal techno from from uh, the Berlin clubs. They have great labels, most of them, and you can listen to that on SoundCloud. And yeah, my kids, they like hip hop, and I listen to Pasha. He's a young Berlin hip hop artist, really cool ah. German rap. If you want to <laughs> learn German or, or listen to that, cool, uh, you can have a okay. have a listen. Really, yeah, that's what I'm currently up to. Excellent, and you you kind of in, intimated this, but you actually listen to uh, to techno uh, while while you're working. Yeah, it depends on the task, of course. But if it's a bit, you know, for coding and, and data analysis, and you want to deep dive into the into the code, then then it helps actually me at yeah. least. Yeah, we ask that a number of people, and there's there's different perspectives on that, but yeah. it, it often is on those kind of where it's just a, a not a routine kind of thing where music helps in doing that. And John, I just have to say, Tears for Fear is fantastic. They just have a new album out. If, if people haven't listened to yeah. it, I, the first two songs are awesome. The the rest of the album, in my mind, is not so great. But maybe it'll grow on me. But the first two songs are outstanding. So yeah. They're back together in, in a really good way, as far yeah. as I'm concerned, too. Yeah. Uh, John and Philip, thank you both so much for being guests on Behavioral Grooves. We are grateful for your time. And thank you for all of the challenges that yep. that we had to overcome to get here and but it's really great to have you as guests and then john if if anybody wanted to support or to contribute because i know you had uh, ways to suggest how can they how can they support uh the pro social design network certainly so the best way there's our website www.prosocialdesign.org they can go there they can if they're able to they can donate if they want to get more involved there's our slack channel they can sign up on uh, a couple of days we'll get back to them and let them aboard and especially in terms of folks that can sort of get into the weeds of things and help us sort of uh you know continue to grow and deliver really fantastic interventions i think that's probably the best way they can help fantastic cool. and and i know many of our listeners out there this is an important piece and so definitely reach out and see Check out the website. It's it's cool, and um, there are lots of you're you're looking for in, input and, and different insights. So really encourage any of our listeners to go out and do that. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you very much. Great questions. Great great conversation. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with John and Philippe, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our pro-social brains. Yeah. What did uh, what did Bill von Hippel call us? Uh, that we we're the hyper-social? We're, we're hyper-social animals? Oh, I, I, I thought you were talking about you and me. Like we're hyper. No, no, no. <laughs> oh my God. I, what did Bill say about us? I don't remember that. But we, we humans, we're just super social and we need social connections. And which, I, which I, is really know. interesting because to the point that, as you talked about, we evolved to be social creatures. We have yeah. this need to belong, to, to fit in. But along with that, there's that dark side of things, this idea that uh, we have in-group and out-group. And if you are in the in-group, you're great. But if you're in the out-group, you are the enemy. You are evil incarnate and all of those factors that come into play. Yeah. And, and my observation of social media in the last uh, couple of years 
uh, where I've really been paying attention to it is the echo chamber. So much of the the commentaries in social media are really just echo chamber kinds of things. They're just doubling down on negativity or complaints or problems that they see, conspiracy theories, all those kinds of things. And they're, it's very, very hard to see any kind of actual conversation. And, and I think this gets back to John and Philippe's uh, design issue is that it wasn't designed to actually facilitate a pro, you know um, healthy exchange. Well, I think uh, the intent was there, right? This, this, sure, this, sure. Uh, as as we said in the intro, it's this unfulfilled promise of what this could have been. Yes. And I think what what happened is that the people who designed this weren't necessarily behavioral scientists or psychologists, and so. They weren't thinking about how human behavior and bad actors come into play and what that entails then for this. So we're doing this grooving session a week after Elon Musk just took over Twitter. And so there's been a whole bunch of information yeah. coming out about the toxicity of Twitter and the negative and misinformation and all those factors that come into play. And it's really interesting because the guy who invented the the retweet, basically, right, that you can just retweet something, you know, now disavows that, says that was the worst thing yeah. that could have ever happened uh -huh. because of the negative impact that that has. Because what gets shared? You know, it's not that, wow, this is great. This is wonderful. No, what gets shared is the the negative pieces are the shocking, you know, so what do people do if you want to get a lot of followers, if you want to get things, well, you go out on the edges and you don't yeah. stay in the middle. And that I think is a, yeah. again, a misstep when we think about how things are designed. We know that from a human nature perspective, and yet it's not taken into account. Yeah. Not enough cuddly puppies. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, okay. So we have cuddly puppies. Those are drawing our attention too, right? We mm -hmm. have we have cuddly puppies on one side. We have toxic misinformation that is driving, you know, all of these conspiracy theories and other things on one on the other side. What we're missing in the middle is nuanced conversation. Right. Right. Uh, maybe uh, we. We can uh, move from the editorial into, <laughs> into exactly what John and Philippe were were talking about, and that really is this this wonderful idea of how can we how can they redesign uh, the social fabric so that it's more civil, so that it it has a built in pro social side to it, and I think that that's that that's a really cool cool, cool question to ask. Yeah. And so, uh, listeners, I, I would encourage you to go out and just look at the Pro Social Design Network. Um, yeah. And we'll have a link for that in the in the show notes because they have a number of different things that they're testing. And this is the wonderful part about this that I love is that they are they're looking at these and then they're testing them and they're saying, does this yeah. work? Does this not work? And and things like the slow down button, you know, the oh, yeah. thank yeah. you button, yeah. the uh, element of, you know, if to to send a message back to trolls to say, oh, your account must have gotten hacked because you obviously wouldn't be saying something so crazy like this. And those are all things that are being tested and, and checked out to say, 
will this reduce the amount of negativity and the trolling and all of the misinformation that's out there? Yeah. I'd also like to just say they're not the first ones. Uh, they're doing great no. work. And uh, But I go back to, I think it was episode 10 when we talked to Cal Turnbull uh -huh. uh, of the Change My Mind Reddit group. And he and he quoted his grandfather. I think of this all the time, Kurt. I just think that his grandfather said, one begins with a judgment and ends with a judgment. And the purpose of facts and figures is to come in between them and make make the one at the end that you the 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 opinion that that the judgment that you come out with at the end more accurate. Not you know, not just feel better, but more accurate. Like, like let's invest in life in, in such a way that we're actually trying to get better at it. Let's yeah, make which is, you know, which is incremental what, things. Which is what Cal was trying to do with that whole component of of the subreddit that he has, you know, uh, change my change my view, change my mind. Oh my gosh, we should know this. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> As we been... mentioned, we're old. We 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 forget about these uh... three hundred episodes later. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but but I think there is this aspect where we can look at the value that social media, that the internet has provided, and it's a ton. I mean, you look at the connections that we made. Just again, Cal Turnbull, we would have never met. Fadi Maki or Rob Burnett out of, you know, the Middle East and Africa. And oh, yeah. we're connected with them. We've we've met Fadi face to face now because of yeah. connections from social media. You know, I mean you can you can yeah. look across the globe and the connections that we have, much less like some of the even local connections that we have that we would never have gotten outside of, you know, some <laughs> of the elements here. It's it's true. I mean, it's it's funny. Even people in the city where we lived, we wouldn't have met them if it wasn't for social media. Yeah, but, I mean, well, you but, met Christina Gravert because of we got her on the show because you were having a Twitter exchange with her, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah, and found she was incredibly fascinating and bright. And uh, it was it, it's always great to talk to Christina. But yeah. but you know, and all these people that you're mentioning are doing very positive pro social work. They're, right, uh, you know, along Channing Jang and Johannes Haushofer from the Busara Center. Oh yeah, Center. there you go. The, the, those guys too, you know, tremendous, uh, tremendously powerful pro-social work, and it's really, really great to have it. And and we we need to have these people in the world, if nothing else, than to counterbalance the bad actors because they're out there. Uh, but it's also the way that our social media is designed right now. It sort of draws out the bad actor aspect of who we are. It allows us to indulge in the bad actor experience in in not such a good way. And it makes it easy for us. You know, they uh, Twitter has reduced the friction for us to be bad, you know, to be nasty, to be naughty, to complain and and almost made it harder to be nice. Yeah, you know, the, there there aren't a lot of good reasons to just be to say thank you or to have a wait a minute are you really sure about that? Or mm -hmm. what's your point about that? Or to, to have some kind of a civil discourse that that doesn't really exist well today. Well, and, and we talked about this with some of the conspiracy theorists, researchers that we had on this idea that one of the things that internet allows is that crazy conspiracy theorist who was on the corner that everybody socially shunned in real life and it was one person in a town or maybe two in a city and 10 in a bigger city right all of a sudden 
they get online and those one, twos, tens add up to tens of thousands around the globe. And all of a sudden that person who was kind of ostracized and out, the out group, the the person who that's crazy. Now social proof comes in and you're going, oh, there's 30. So so that person who's walking by and goes, oh, is that really true? And you're going, oh, no, that's just Crazy Joe on the corner. Well, Crazy Joe has 10,000, 20,000 friends. And so maybe Crazy Joe isn't so crazy anymore. And you, yeah. it's a reinforcing loop. And those are the pieces where you kind of go, no, it's still Crazy Joe. There's just 10,000 <laughs> Crazy Joes, right? We got right. 7 billion plus people on the world. There's a bunch of crazy people, and the yeah. rest of us who aren't crazy need to understand that. Um, but we but we give in, right? We we get soft around that because it's like, oh yeah, there are ten thousand crazy joes out there. Maybe maybe they are onto something. Exactly, and that's that's our human nature, right? That's understanding social proof and the and those elements of of what comes into play. I, I do think that what. John and Philippe are trying to do is something that is of vital importance, though. And I think that that is a positive. And I think we all can be part of that. I love the fact that the behavioral science community has a powerful and strong presence on social media. And that's where we met all these other people. And it's positive. It's, it's, It's bringing research to out, out that we would have never gotten. It's introducing us to people and to different areas beyond the weird, you know, people that I would normally know of. And it even brings us closer to researchers at home. But it's that it's that community. And that's what is powerful about the internet. And it's just, it's like making sure that we build it so that those positive communities can really flourish. Yeah, I'd like to say one other thing about uh, John and, and Philippe, and of course Joel, who is a you know co-founder of the, who we did not get to talk to. But you know they're not Pollyannish dreamers. They're not just these is sort of blue-eyed. Oh my gosh, life is life is so great, and everybody should join in our you know love the world and hug everybody. You know these guys uh, they believe in a better world, and they're using science to get there, hard science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just respect that a lot, and really I'm, I'm grateful that we got to talk to them. Yeah. What do you think? The wrap on that one? Yep. I think, I think we should wrap this episode up. <laughs> Let's wrap it. I'm. And by the way, I just want to say I'm hopeful that this initiative will help get things started to create a better design and have a better social media experience for people in the future. Yeah, me too. I, and, and if you're interested in helping out or have ideas that you think should be tested, check out the Pro Social Design Network. And again, you can find that link in the show notes. Absolutely. And so with that, we hope that this week you take this information from Joel and Philippe and this little bit of conversation from Kurt and I, and it helps you to go out and find your groove. Your social groove. <laughs>